You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. everyone and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse and I am your host and along with our producer Alex Diaz, we welcome you to the show this morning. Good morning, Alex. How are you? I'm keeping well, much better than I was about this time last week when I was rushing into the studio today. Uh, it, it definitely helps to to give yourself more time when you travel, for sure. I, I <laughs> left a half an hour early after I think last we, week's I, catastrophe. I think we both learned our lesson. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if you guys listened last week, but Alex and I, well, we were both late. Um, I sat down about one minute, too, and Alex came in about 10 after 11. We had There was terrible traffic. And my heart raced getting off the getting off Black Creek Drive today. I was so I was I flew until I got to that point and I was so anxious. So I left a whole half hour earlier. My heart was racing this morning. It's just that's what live radio is all about, I guess. Right? Exactly, right? You oh, never know, you never what, know. What, what to expect and you just have to have to I, I was so thankful that uh, Dr. Leslie Korn was so so um understanding, understanding sure, yes. about it and I listened we have the podcast up and I listened to the podcast and, and I, I realized how fast I was racing through um the first part of it I even had said I'm sorry I'm going so fast I was just so anxious yeah. but that's okay that's okay. We're on a to a bit, new show on today. On to a new show. <laughs> and, uh, and new yeah. experiences. Uh, you know what? It's, it's all fun. It's, it, you know what? Uh, I think one of our guests says uh, comedy is just uh, tragedy with time added to it. Oh, that's very that true. That was Alison Schaefer. So today I, tell we you, laughed. I wasn't laughing I wasn't last laughing week. I wasn't laughing last week either. <laughs> Not at all. But anyways, on we go. Upwards and onwards to better things. Today's show is live and we are on time. So there's <laughs> no racing through the show today. You can contact us at 416-245-1534. You can hit us up on all of our social media sites, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Um, last week, we had some phone calls, which is really nice. Um, we didn't get to them because we were so busy, but uh, we're so rushed. But it is nice. People are starting to pick up and phone in. I'm getting lots and lots of engagement. So continue on. It helps us to be better people and to do better shows for you. So awesome. And do subscribe to our podcast, The Health Hub, on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also find them on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is www.radiomaria.ca. You can find them on my website, which is www.kathybiasse.com. And if you like what you hear, do feel free to leave us a good comment. It's great for us. It's great for um, other people's dabbling on the podcast front and wanting to uh, try something new. And we have some amazing guests like we do today with our guest, Dr. Ginger Nash. And we will get to her shortly. But before we do, our, our topic today is around hormones and menopause and women's health. I'm not sure if we're going to hear too much of Alex. Who knows? Who knows what he may pop up with? But I wanted to, you know, as, as a to frame to frame the show. 
show to give you some little a little bit of um, a, a dive into hormone menopause, not menopause, into women and their periods. Uh, pre-menopause, obviously, and I just pulled some interesting facts that I thought I'd like to share with you before I go on and introduce our guest. So, number one, women will spend approximately 3,500 days menstruating during their lifetime, and that averages out to about 400 periods in the lifetime of women. Interesting. Periods are often longer, heavier, and more painful during the winter months. Modern day women, so that's uh, that's girls now and women now, have been starting their periods earlier and earlier. That is something that is is very noticeable when you when you talk to parents, and actually uh, some people get concerned about it. Some w- girls start their their periods as early as eight or nine years old, and this has the thought that uh, the reasoning behind why this is happening is that women are heavier than we used to be, and pre modern women were much leaner, and because women are heavier. Fat produces more estrogen in the bloodstream, which may cause periods to come along in or much earlier in a woman's uh, life. The human female egg is the largest single cell in the female body and the only cell that is can that can be seen by the naked eye. I found that one very interesting, very interesting. And here's the last one, and I never noticed this, but uh, you may. The sound of your voice changes during your period. And this has been uh, proven through research. So there you go. A couple of, uh, well, five interesting facts around uh, women and their periods. And now um, I don't see Alex putting up his hand for any questions. So I'm just going to jump into introducing our guest for today. Our guest is Dr. Ginger Nash. She graduated from the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in 1998. After graduating, she worked in the field of women's health, speaking with and lecturing to hundreds of women interested in hormonal health throughout the U.S., Dr. Nash moved to the East Coast in 1999 and has had a thriving practice in Connecticut since that year. She studied complex homeopathy for 10 years with Dr. Gerard Guignot, and for three years, Dr. Nash worked alongside Dr. Peter Peter Damo at the Center for Personalized Medicine in Wilton, Connecticut. Both complex herbal medicine and nutrigenomics are the cornerstones of her practice. Dr. Nash taught at the University of Bridgeport's College of Naturopathic Medicine Clinic for six years and has taught seminars for healthcare practitioners throughout the U.S. and Canada for over a decade. She is currently working on a book about women's health, and maybe she'll talk to us a bit about that towards the end of our show. Our learning points for today are, what is a healthy transition to menopause? Should women use bioidentical hormones? And how does our lymphatic system influence our hormonal health? And when we get back from our break, we will talk to Dr. Ginger Nash. This time of desperation When all we know is doubt and fear There is only one foundation We believe We believe We believe in God the Father We believe in Jesus Christ We believe in the Holy Spirit And He's given us new life 
We believe in the crucifixion. We believe that he conquered death. We believe in the resurrection. And he's coming back again. We believe. So let our faith be more than anthems. Than the songs we sing, and in our weakness and temptations, we believe. to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are live. Please do call in at 416-245-1534. We are still taking your questions on our social media sites at The Health Hub RMC. And if you prefer to email your questions in, do so at thh at radiomaria.ca. Good morning, Dr. Nash. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Kathy. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you for taking the time to come with us. We do so appreciate the the time that uh, you guys give us to come to the show, because I know an hour is a chunk of time, but it gives us uh, a lot of time to get deep into your subject, which is, you know, feminine, feminology, that's that's your... Is it your hashtag or is it the name of your business? What What is that? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a second business that I started in addition to the, you know, my private practice, which I've had for 20 years now. Um, and it's really a movement of women in uh, the natural health space and outside of it as well. And I'm trying to spread the word about 
women's natural rhythms and what they can expect at various transitional points in their female lives. Um, and I just have to say at the outset that I loved the facts that you shared uh, at the beginning of the segment today. And I always learn something from every interview that I do. And that's always fun. And I just I loved the the fact that you shared particularly about women's periods being heavier and longer in the winter months, um, because that's exactly the kind of thing that I am fascinated by and committed to educating women about is that we are in sync with our environments and the natural rhythms of the world and our bodies, you know, and to really help women feel good in that and not feel like uh, their hormones are dragging them all over the place or putting them on a roller coaster, that kind of thing. It's true. You know, uh, you know, before we actually get into the end part of a woman's cycle, let's talk about the beginning part of a woman's cycle. You know, it's, it's, very important that women understand it. They don't have to take a huge dive into it, but just if they understood the rhythm of their cycles and how the hormones yep. are fluctuating throughout the month, it might help them to a explain some of their behaviors, yeah, b, to be prepared to eat differently. So, you know, how, how do you educate young women um, in that front? Great question. So, um, the, the first place to start, and if you have a piece of graph paper nearby or a visual, that's always helpful because women's hormones are complex. And of course, we have many, many hormones, but the two big ones that we think about in terms of the monthly rhythm are estrogen and progesterone, of course. And the first thing I like to teach young women or girls, if they're interested, is that these two hormones um, work like a seesaw. And that it's not even so much how much of one or the other, how much progesterone, how much estrogen you have, but what those two hormones are doing in relationship to one another. So it really is about the concept of balance from the very beginning, because every tissue that has estrogen receptors in our body, everywhere that estrogen acts in our body we also have progesterone receptors. And it's the interplay of these two hormones across the month and the first half of the cycle, the first half of the 28-day cycle, so two weeks, is dominated by estrogen. And then the second half of your cycle is dominated or progesterone comes up to balance out in, in the best of cases and when a woman is, uh, is balanced hormonally. Um, to balance out the effects of that estrogen in the second half of the month. So, so even though women are in tune with a moon cycle, um, there is sort of two major phases of that monthly cycle, the estrogenic phase and the progesterogenic phase. So that's the first sort of thing that I like to start educating women about um, are, are the importance of these two hormones being in balance with one another. So... And and we could do a whole show about estrogen balance. So I, I don't want to go down. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't I want to go. That's a topic close to your heart and your <laughs> listeners' hearts. And we can talk talk more about that if people have questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, maybe we'll leave those in case people do have. Because like we could actually spend the first half talking about estrogen balance and putting it in balance. But maybe instead of doing that, I'll ask a question. Um, about PMS. And just because so many people have premenstrual syndrome, does that make Absolutely. it normal? 
Because everyone has it, does that make it so? Um, great question again, Kathy. I would say, I would say mild changes in the way you feel, and PMS stands for premenstrual syndrome. So most women experience these kinds of PMS symptoms a week or sometimes even two weeks before their menses, which includes things like, you know, bloating and breast tenderness, increased moodiness, um, weight gain, um, constipation, potentially. Uh, so there's a lot of things that women experience during this second half of the cycle. But no, I don't think it is quote unquote normal to have debilitating PMS, meaning it you know, in, impedes you from doing your normal activities of, of daily life, that kind of thing. But I do think it's become normal. And again, this is one of the facts that you mentioned at the top of the hour, this notion that women and well, girls are getting their periods so much earlier, and partly as a result of increased fat mass, which does produce more estrogen. But also, there's a theory that because we have so many more toxins and chemicals in our environment that mimic the effects of estrogen in our bodies. This may be another reason why women are getting their periods sooner, uh, you know, eight, nine years old. I've definitely seen a couple of young girls in my practice who are nine or 10 and they're, they're getting their menses. And also this contributes to the predominance and the prevalence of PMS. Mm -hmm. Because the most common way, I think, that women are out of balance in the ratio of estrogen and progesterone is referred to as estrogen dominance. And I'm sure you've spent time discussing that on your show before. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there, there is a lot of PMS. And this is because, like I said earlier, the after ovulation, the body, the ovary is supposed to the corpus luteum is supposed to be secreting progesterone to balance out the effects of estrogen in the body. But when we have estrogen dominance, when we have not only what our own bodies are producing for estrogen, but um, distortions in the types of estrogen, more pro-inflammatory estrogens, and then potentially exogenous estrogens that were taking in in our food sources and plastics, chemicals, pesticides, all those things can also increase the effects of this estrogen dominance phenomenon. Um, so yeah, it, you're right. It's incredibly common, but you know, is it normal? Well, I hate to say anything is abnormal because I do believe that it is somewhat normal for women to feel differently in that week before their period than, than the rest of the month. But is it, should it be pathological? Should it be debilitating? Should it be, you know, migraines and things that are going to, like I said, keep you from living your life? No, that's not normal. Um, and that's where, you know, we have so much work to do helping mm -hmm. women feel good in their mm -hmm. bodies because, um, the environment has, has absolutely had an effect on, on the way we are managing our hormonal system. What got you started dealing with women's health? Did you have a personal experience or is it just oh, an interest? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite dramatic, actually. I was 24 years old. I was working on a master's in the history of medicine in San Diego, California, and these were back in the days, and you're Canadian, so you've never had this ridiculous 
thing, but it, it did exist here in the States for many years where you didn't have to have health insurance. So I was a broke graduate student and I did not have health insurance and I was cycling very irregularly, um, skipping periods for months at a time, kept taking pregnancy tests, which were negative, and then finally got in to get an ultrasound. And it turned out I had a huge, like the size of a volleyball ovarian cyst that they couldn't even tell what it was attached to, what it wasn't. So I needed emergency gynecological surgery. It was actually rupturing. And it was quite scary. Going under general anesthesia, it was considered exploratory because I didn't have insurance. It was at a teaching hospital. I was told as I was being wheeled into the operating room that I might wake up with no gynecological organs left in my mm -hmm. body if they determined that it was a cancerous mass, which it was not, thank goodness. Um, but I got out of the hospital on my 25th birthday, and I have never had quite the epiphany I had that night laying in bed looking down at 27 staples in my abdomen, and I had lost an ovary and a fallopian tube. Um, I decided I was working uh, as a research assistant for a, a professor in the history department that was writing a book about naturopathic medicine. So I knew that the schools existed. This was back in 93 when there were only... Uh, four schools. Mm -hmm. So I just had an epiphany that I was going to become a naturopathic doctor and help women, you know, with these kinds of issues in their bodies. I mean, it was a terribly scary and traumatic experience for me to go through that. And it was as a result of, I believe, having my hormones really distorted and my nutritional status distorted by being on birth control pills for a number of years. And that's a whole other topic we could spend an hour on. Um, but yeah, that was my personal experience. And I woke up the next day, called the schools and ended up going to NCNM, which is now NUNM in Portland, Oregon, um, did all my prerequisites and never looked back. <laughs> so why did you go the naturopathic route as opposed to the allopathic route? Well, I guess because I had um, experienced, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I was working on the history of medicine, and I had I had learned throughout my master's education um, that at the time of the nineteenth, the turn of the nineteenth to the twentieth century, there were over four hundred naturopathic and homeopathic colleges in the U.S. And this was not considered sort of fringe or alternative. It was very much a campaign against more natural forms of medicine with you know, in conjunction with the rise of professions in general and the rise of the AMA here in the States. Um, and they delegitimized this entire, you know, aspect of looking at the body. So I really had learned, like, there's so many ways, right, that we can look at the body. I mean, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, these are traditions thousands of years old. And I came to a very strong um, belief that, you know, our system of medicine is not truth with the capital T. It's just one way of understanding how the body works. And I, I guess I'll never know why I'm more uh, fascinated by the intricacies and the complexities of natural medicine, but I do think that it is more of a uh, complex way of approaching chronic disease. I mean, certainly don't get me wrong, you know, allopathic medicine has its place. And I refer to allopathic doctors routinely. Um, but 
what I was interested in was the more subtle and the more complex and the more holistic way of working with uh, people on their health issues. Absolutely. Fair enough. Okay, let's dig, yeah. take a, a dive into this now. And I think before we start going into, um, you know, what a what a, a lifetime cycle should look like, maybe you could define a, a couple of terms that I think need need proper definition. And that's perimenopause versus menopause. I think there's a little yeah. confusion around those two. There is because I, there it's it's kind of one of those weird, you know, like where are when are you actually menopausal because we go from perimenopause like are you menopausal the moment your periods mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't know because menopause is defined postmenopause is defined as one year after your last menses right so perimenopause is the period it's defined technically medically as the period just before the cessation of your menses your last menstrual cycle but of course you don't know because some women are in perimenopause for you know a few months and some women are in perimenopause for a number of years so it's it's again like pointing to what i just said it's more complex than you know a straight medical definition but but when you look at the textbooks perimenopause is the period of time when your hormones start to fluctuate and i like to educate women that this is the time that you start having an ovulatory cycle so you're not ovulating every month your ovaries are starting to go into retirement as i like to say so they're not producing an egg every month um and so you're not getting the effects of the progesterone that's secreted post ovulation So you're getting a lot of, you know, intense hormonal fluctuations for this perimenopausal period. Now, like I said, for some women, you know, that may be a relatively easy transition, but for most women, it's not. And and it can potentially last many years and cause a lot of symptomatic fluctuations. The most common one we think of with perimenopause or menopause is the hot flash. but there's some other things that are actually more prevalent with perimenopause that I, I like to educate women about as well. One of them being anxiety mm-hmm. um, and insomnia. And sometimes this is the first sign of the perimenopausal transition. So then perimenopause is the period before your menses stops. And then menopause is defined technically as one year without a menstrual cycle. But as I'm sure you know, Kathy, some women um, go a few months without getting a period or even close to a year, and then they'll get a period again. So it really depends on the individual. And then, of course, some women go through surgical menopause, right? Mm-hmm. They've gotten a breast cancer diagnosis or a ovarian cancer or uterine cancer, and then they have organs removed and hormones blocked and then they're or you know drug-induced menopause so it's um again it's a gray area but um perimenopause is the transitional period really okay um and i often call it puberty in reverse because for most girls when they go through puberty their cycles are not fully regulated up until up to two years so you can you know, extrapolate from that, that it, it's not abnormal for a woman to have perimenopausal transition last, you know, 
more than a few months and maybe even a couple of years. Okay, yeah, the emotional aspect is is quite, you know, quite profound as well. We're going to take a short break and we've got a lot to, to tackle the second half of the show. So we will be back with you in a couple of minutes. Great. Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, please call 416-360-0740. 
416-245-1534. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're getting some questions sent in to us. So what I want to do is try and weave them into our topic line because we have a lot to get into for the next 20 minutes. So um, Dr. Nash, maybe you could tell us what you find is a healthy transition into menopause. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I feel that, you know, what we've been discussing so far is, is part of it is being able to balance these hormones to the extent so that the transition is not so extreme. Um, And I do this in my work, as you, I think you know, without the use of many bioidentical hormones. So working on other various systems in the body, um, it is possible to manage this transition quite gracefully. um, If you have the right Uh, diet, if you have the right approach to how to supplement in certain cases, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't have to be this um, scary time where, you know, you feel that your hormones are all just, you know, getting depleted and that you're going to just sort of dry out and, and become insignificant. I mean, I think that part of the healthy transition to menopause is recognizing that our culture doesn't really value the aging process, especially for women. And so there's definitely some awareness that needs to be addressed um, in order to really think about what this transition means for you. And in some ways it can be an incredibly rich time where you get to focus on some different aspects of your life and what you want from it. So That is so um, important. It really is important, yeah. the emotional... Um, I was I was one of those people because of my cancer treatment that I was thrown into uh, medical uh, menopause. Menopause. So yep. uh, some people have said that I was blessed. Some people, um, you know, don't say anything, of course. But uh, I, it has <laughs> it had its benefits and its its drawbacks for certain. Um, yeah. I, I it was very quick, obviously. But, you know, I didn't get a chance to deal with that emotional part. I had four kids. I'm a very fortunate person. Um, but just yeah. knowing that. I now could not have more. It took it. It took some thinking about you know, and and going back and thinking of how fortunate I was. But it's a topic that again, another show we could address the whole time. But the emotional component of of going into the transition is something that's very important. Now, what I'm getting from what you're talking about is, you know, we should be setting up much earlier in life for this transition. And if we're living, absolutely. So Absolutely. That's the case uh, that you yes. that you were trying. So again, yeah, and all the research shows that the more PMS, the more severe version of PMS is PMDD, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, where the mood and the hormones really and the neurotransmitters are really really off kilter, and women have severe. Uh, emotional swings, but there's definitely evidence to suggest that the more out of balance your hormones are as a younger childbearing age woman, the more difficulty you're going to have going through menopause. I can't tell you how many times this theme has come up in the last few shows from saunas to, uh, I'm I'm trying to think of of the last time it came up, but educating women young, uh, this seems to be a topic that really needs to be addressed somehow. Um, because framing young women for the rest of their life can, you know, we, when you're young, this is the, I guess the issue, you know, you're never going to get old when you're young, but it is, (laughs) it seems just so uh, the theme coming through. 
Yeah. And the thing is, is the younger you can address these things, the bigger the effect on the long-term trajectory, right? You make Mm -hmm. a micro adjustment, you know, even something as like seemingly innocuous as dietary changes in a teenage girl, you know, that can have profound effects on the microbiome, on the gut flora, on the way she's going to metabolize estrogen, the way she's going to set herself up for fertility, for childbearing, for postpartum, you know, for menopause. I mean, it's really profound. Mm, and, it is. And absolutely. And the more, and the more your, your movement is getting people and women comfortable talking about this, you don't have to know yes. all the science and all everything, but just enough to be able to talk with your own daughters, your nieces about this is, yes. is, is wonderful. It's a wonderful thing that you're doing. Now, you touched on something that I want to make sure that we spend a little bit of time on. It's the bioidentical hormones. Um, I know yep. you're not a fan. I don't know if that means yeah, that you I never... Yeah, I mean, but I don't. It's not like, you know, there's a place for them and there's certain practitioners that you know, use them and use them well and wisely. It's just not the focus of, of how I work with women. Um, and of course, you know, for some women, they do still carry risks. And more importantly, for, from my perspective, um, is looking at, you know, what the what the end game is, you know, what the real goal is, is it to restore hormone levels to premenopausal levels for, for a menopausal woman? Well, that's not really natural in my mm-hmm. book. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and it's not that I want women to suffer. Don't get me wrong. And I do have a few women in my practice that use bioidentical hormones, but it's just not, I don't find them to be necessary in the overwhelming majority of, of my patient base. So. Is, there, is there a risk in using them? Well, of course, there's a risk with, with any uh, any type of hormone replacement, right? I mean... I, you know, I've had experiences when I was working with Dr. Diadamo, actually, I'll never forget, I had a woman that had been applying uh, progesterone cream, which, you know, was, was thought by her to be completely risk-free, which I'm not saying progesterone cream is bad or evil. I mean, it's all depending on the individual woman, but this woman developed inflammatory breast cancer after putting progesterone cream on her breasts every day for, you know, a number of years. Mm-hmm. And... I mean, was that a result of the progesterone cream? I don't know, but it was not something that the the oncologist was, you know, was extremely concerned about. And her levels of progesterone were sky high in her system. Mm -hmm. So as I said at the at the earlier part of the of the show, Kathy, right, it's about the balance of these two hormones. So when you go giving a hormone, you're going to affect every other aspect of the endocrine system because it all works as a mobile is a common uh, analogy that I use. When you give one hormone, all the other glands and hormones are going to try to compensate in some way for the taking of that hormone from the outside. So my preference is always, you know, if you can balance these hormones without the use of replacing them. Um, And there are some women that that's just how they feel they want to go, you know, and this is not just women that have had cancer diagnosis, but maybe they have a strong family history or maybe just intuitively they don't they don't want to take hormones, you know, or bioidentical or not. Um, so those are the kinds of patients that usually find their way to me. Um, okay. <laughs> and like I said, it's not that I'm absolutely against. I mean, there are very few things in medicine that I can say you should never do this or you should always do this. 
Um, but it's just not the, my, my main approach. Now, bioidentical, I should, I should ask you to um, yep. define Clarify what that, that is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So bioidentical hormones are hormones that are, they're still manufactured in a lab, but they are the exact molecular structure that our bodies make. So they're different than synthetic hormones like uh, HRT, which is given at menopause, or the synthetic estrogens and progestins found in hormonal contraceptives, which are really drugs. They are manipulated slightly to resemble hormones so that our bodies make, so they still bind to the receptors, but the body doesn't really recognize them as something that, you know, they know what it is. And so it puts a lot more stress on liver metabolism, on gallbladder health, on, on the microbiome. So there is definitely, in my opinion, a benefit to bioidentical hormones over synthetic hormones, but they still they still act on hormone receptors, so you still got to take into consideration each woman's individual. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. going to throw in a question here. Um, yeah. Somebody has asked, "Does it, what what do I need to worry about if my daughter's period is, is has started young? Is there a worry?" Is it depends on how young and it depends on the other types of symptoms that she may be experiencing. I mean, um, if she's got, you know, endometriosis and that's what is causing this, you know, early bleeding or if she's got a ton of exposure to uh, estrogen mimicking chemicals in the environment or estrogens in, I mean, chicken is a great example. I mean, I've had patients tell me that they get a hot flash if they eat commercial chicken because it's got so much estrogen pumped into it to make the breasts larger in the chicken. So then that gets concentrated in the flesh of the meat. And so that's another major way that we're getting hormone-like exposure from certain animal products. So it really depends on what what the girl is eating and sort of, you know, if she's having a lot of other, I mean, if she's having normal, regular cycles and they're just come early, um, you know, it really depends. I mean, if she's not overweight, if she's not dealing with migraines or endometriosis or ovarian cysts or any of the other potential problems that this could reflect, then it may be okay. Um, okay. It's just um, something to keep an eye out for other issues of estrogen dominance. Okay, fair enough. Um, I wanted yep. to get to our last learning point for sure. This may take you a little bit of time to get through the lymphatic system. Uh, that's that's yeah, a, a great... Yeah, my favorite. Okay, well, great. <laughs> Again, another topic that we could do a whole show on, but um, many yeah. people do not know what the lymphatic system is, so maybe you could walk yep. us through that and then yep. and then explain how this you know not too well-known system has such an impact on hormones. So... The lymphatic system is a whole separate circulatory system, other than the blood vessels, of course, the veins and the arteries, that uh, traverses the whole body and, and into the brain as well. So what it does is it doesn't have a pump like the heart to pump blood, but it, it relies on muscle contraction um, to pump lymphatic fluid throughout the body and what the body does with this lymphatic fluid is it filters it through our lymph nodes so it has a big big role in our immune health because it moves all of our immunoglobulins and some of our immune the cells of our immune system around in our body 
And it also plays a, a really important role as a, a cleanser. It's like the natural, the lymphatic vessels are the superhighways of picking up all the metabolic waste products um, from our cellular metabolism, so from within our bodies, and also has to pick up all the toxins and, and things that I've mentioned a few times already that we're exposed to from the environment. So, so the lymphatic system plays a ginormous role in detoxification and proper elimination. And it also, the way that it is situated in the body, it's very superficial. It's just underneath the surface of the skin. And it interweaves and intertwines with what's called the interstitium or sometimes the extracellular matrix because these little tiny delicate vessels with this lymphatic fluid pick up all the proteins and the waste products from the cell after they've moved through the cell membrane and into this extracellular space. So if our lymphatic system is sluggish, it's going to potentially cause some immune compromisation. And I work in Connecticut, as you mentioned, so I treat a tremendous amount of infectious disease, Lyme and co-infections. So I'm always, always, always addressing lymphatic health and evaluating lymphatic health. Um, and it's also going to have a profound effect on the entire ability of the body to eliminate effectively. So that means every metabolic product and product, you know, byproduct of hormone metabolism, neurotransmitter metabolism, every protein in the body that needs to be moved around and eventually eliminated um, has to travel through the lymph. So, so it can play a huge role in moving hormones around, especially progesterone. So as we've been discussing, um, estrogen dominance is probably the most common form of hormone imbalance for women. And if you've got a sluggish lymphatic system and you've got edema and um, or even just, you know, uh, chronically swollen or tender lymph nodes, um, it means that you may not be moving your hormones around your body quite as well in addition to some of the other um, points of the lymphatic system. And it interfaces with the nervous system as well. So it's this really, um, it's this really pervasive system that there are no blood tests to measure lymphatic health. Um, I used to do a careful physical exam for lymphatic evaluation, but in the last maybe eight years now, um, I've been using a whole body regulation thermography approach, and that looks at 120 points across the whole body, but a lot of those points are lymphatic points. So I always, as a starting point with any woman, especially um, in my practice, I'm always evaluating what the lymphatic system is doing and how compromised it is and how well the person is eliminating and or uh, detoxing. So, so it's, pretty, how, it's pretty profound. How do we know if, you know, other than the, the large symptoms of swelling, how do we know if our lymphatic system is keeping up to pace? Because I think most people are familiar with our, our common areas of elimination, you know, our lungs, yep. kidneys, yep. and so forth. But this may yep. be something completely unknown to people. Absolutely. So um, it can be very hard to tell at times, Kathy. That's why I've become so enamored of using this um, particular type of regulation thermography, because it gives me 
a ton of information about the lymphatic system. Uh, but certainly things like chronic sore throats, um, you know, the area in our neck where the tonsils are, those are basically just giant lymph nodes. If you get chronic sore throats and if you feel a lot of congestion or sluggishness in the throat area or if you have, you know, fibrocystic breasts potentially that get very swollen, I mean, some of that can be estrogen, but also um, the lymphatic system of the breast is, is often a place where women will feel symptoms um, with, you know, premenstrually especially. Um, and then there's a huge amount of lymphatics in the groin, but also if you have chronic digestive issues, I mean, people with irritable bowel syndrome um, or, uh, you know, chronic nausea or even SIBO, which is a very common condition nowadays, people are realizing that the bacteria from their colon are migrating up into their small intestine, that, that can cause some inflammation and chronic issues around the lymphatics, which start in the gut. You know, the, the, uh, the GALT is the gut-associated lymphoid tissue, and then there's MALT, which is mucosal-associated lymphoid tissue. So we have all these areas, you know, chronic sinusitis. I mean, you have to do a careful clinical history in order to really determine whether you think the person has some chronic issues with the lymph. Um, even something like a low white count could suggest in a CBC, you know, in a blood test could suggest, okay, so there's something going on with my immune system. What is that about? Well, maybe it's about the, the sluggishness of the lymphatic system that isn't um, moving those white blood cells around and uh, compromising the immune system overall. And, and the reverse is true as well as if you've had an infectious disease um, that can also cause a sluggishness in the lymphatic system. So it works both ways. If your lymph is sluggish, you're more prone to becoming um, infected. And if you've had an infectious disease, that can actually, um, you know, put more stress and strain on the lymphatic system and over time can, can cause a, a sluggishness in, that, in those pathways. So an interesting piece to hormonal health, for sure. Something that I'm sure most yeah. of us didn't even... Yeah consider. Um, we're pushing up against the end of our hour, and I want to talk sure. to you a little bit about um, the the book that you're, are you able to discuss what you're writing about? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's all part and parcel of the work that I'm doing with feminology. So, and I wanted to please ask your viewers if anybody's been interested in the kinds of things we're discussing today. Um, we have a great Facebook community. There's a page called Feminology but um, if you are a woman and you'd like to join in sort of more deeper conversation around these issues of natural health, please find, find Feminology on Facebook or you can send me an email. I'm pretty easy to Google and I'll, I'll get you in there. Um, and the book is really going to be about this concept of putting women back in touch with the natural rhythms of their bodies and discussing um, ways that we can take care of ourselves and educate ourselves so that we don't rely upon, um, you know, the use of either drugs or bioidentical hormones to, to keep those rhythms uh, feeling, feeling good. Because my, my ultimate goal is, um, and my, my belief is that 
when women are in touch with those natural rhythms of their bodies, they really get to know themselves better and they make better decisions about their lives. Mm -hmm. You know, they just, they're more in touch with their intuition. They're more in touch with what they need, what they don't need. Um, and like you said earlier, it's so important for young girls, especially to be uh, educated and aware that they have a deep sense of knowing of what's right for them and, and to try and help them make good decisions and certainly at menopause as well. I mean, I, I run a, um, an online menopause group and it's been, we just had a conversation last night, a live call last night, and it's just so great to see these women making connections between various uh, life events and the, their hormonal health and really stepping into a new place of, of power. Um, I mean, I like to call menopause the age of wisdom and strength because most women, by the time they're rounding 50, have been through a few things in their lives and they know a few things and and they're really hopefully in a position to create more of the life that they want because I think that that is very much the the possible, you know, outcome of of menopause. So. Great. It's fantastic, actually. I've looked at I've yeah. looked at the Facebook page. It's wonderful. Now, maybe you could leave us... First of all, what is the website that you would like people to contact you or look at you through? Well, our website, our Feminology website is being built as we speak, but it will be um, feminology.org. And that will not take you anywhere right now except to a place that says coming soon. So the way, the best way to probably stay in touch is either through Facebook or I can certainly put you on my email list. So if anybody wants to contact me, um, you can just send an email to office at gingernash.com and we'll get you on our email list. Or if you are a Facebooker, you can find us on Facebook and we will have a site that will have lots and lots of good information and content and um, community building that should go live. Hopefully by the end of July. So I'm like really excited about that. Great. I will put that up on the Facebook page. And as we sign off, if maybe you could give us a, a quick tip on hormonal health, something that uh, you think that our listeners would really take, take to heart. Well, I think that that would be around the lymphatic flow. So there's so many wonderful, simple home treatments that one can do for lymph. And one of the things that has some great research behind it is rebounding. And you may be aware of this, Kathy, because there was a study that came out, oh, maybe five or six years ago now that five minutes a day of rebounding. So just jumping on a little mini trampoline can lower your risk of breast cancer. And I would be willing to bet that that is because it's really a fantastic way to move the lymph. Um, So rebounding and dry skin brushing is my other most favorite tip in terms of um, moving lymphatic, uh, you know, improving lymphatic health and moving the lymph. And for those of you that don't know, dry skin brushing is not for dry skin. It's done on dry skin and it's very simple. You can just hop on YouTube or, or the internet and Google it, but um, your local health food store should have a dry skin brush. And if you just learn how to do that at home, 60 to 90 seconds once a day, it's going to be like a little mini workout for your lymphatic system, and, and you'll be amazed how, how after doing that for a few weeks straight. Perfect. Thank you very much, yeah. everybody. This has been yeah. a great show. Uh, the podcast will be up soon. I will put the contact information for Dr. Nash on the Facebook page. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Nash, and we'll talk to you, Thank everybody, you so next much. week on The Health Hub. 
You have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.